Welcome to the podcast of RUF at Boston University. Oh, there we go. Okay, we're going. Anyways, glad you guys are all here. Um, as I was saying before, um, as you know, we're digging into this this old document called the Apostles' Creed, which was written um, long, long time ago to kind of summarize the main tenets of Christianity and the main uh, principles that all Christians agree that are like without them, Christianity would not be what it is. Um, so, so far we've covered who God the Father is um, as creator and father. And uh, now we're talking about who Jesus is. Um, Nathan talked about, started talking about that a couple weeks ago, um, about how, you know, Jesus was born in a miraculous way and then lived a perfect life um, and then actually died uh, as both man and God and how his perfect sacrifice provided the payment for the sins of the whole world. So now... We're going to look into this doctrine of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, which is a huge topic. So there's a lot that we could say about it, but um, I hope that what we are going to talk about is um, going to be of help to you. So let me just say a quick prayer, and then we can um, get into it. Lord God, I pray that you would um, open our hearts to your word and that you would uh, speak through it to us, um, however we need to hear it today. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Marcus Zusak's World War II novel, that is a hard sentence to say, um, The Book Thief, the narrator is death. I hope that some of you guys have read this. As an aside, it's a really, really good book. Um, but death, the narrator, is actually quite a likable and humorous character. Um, and he says to the reader on the very first page of the book, right here, a small fact, you're going to die. Reaction to the aforementioned fact, does that worry you? I urge you, don't be afraid. I'm nothing if not fair. And it got me thinking, we spend a lot of our creative energies trying to make death seem less worrying. We personify it, we euphemize it, or we forget about it. Um, but at the end of the day, like many, many of us are afraid of death because we know it's the one thing that we can't escape. And today, often people have like a reticence to accept right, the idea of miracles and especially the resurrection miracle. And I think part of that reasoning is because the idea of resurrection kind of goes against everything that we know to be true in the world, right? We, we, have, we know, like, death is the end. It's the great equalizer. Everyone beats it eventually. No one can beat it. And many people like the idea in Christianity of, you know, their sins getting forgiven, but they just have, would rather not entertain this idea of miracles. Um, and so I'm not trying to be like a huge downer right now, but I think it's important to realize like we all know that death is a true fact of the world. Um, and so we're going to see that the resurrection, uh, this miracle that we're kind of hesitant to accept, is actually central to Christianity. And that without it, the faith that so many people profess, including many of us here, is actually useless. Um, I was reading The Reason for God by Tim Keller in preparation for this because he had the whole chapter on the resurrection. I totally recommend it. Um, but this is one quote that I thought was really helpful. He says, sometimes people approach me and say, I really struggle with this aspect of Christian teaching. I like this part of Christian belief, but I don't think I can accept that part. And he says, I usually respond, 
If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. That is how the first hearers felt who heard reports of the resurrection. They knew that if it was true, it meant we can't live our lives any way we want. It also meant we don't have to be afraid of anything, not Roman swords, not cancer, nothing. If Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. So before we talk about why Jesus' resurrection changes everything, I think we kind of need to get on the same page about the actual event and kind of like what we mean when we say the phrase, he resurrected and ascended to heaven. So we mean that the accounts in scripture are factual and true, that the people who wrote them actually saw what they saw, said they saw. And we mean that Jesus was dead, like super dead. Um, what Nathan talked about last time, I guess not last week, two weeks ago, um, he, you know, he talked about how just the instrument of torture that the cross was. It was designed to have a slow, painful death. And Jesus did. He died in agony on the cross. So he was dead in a tomb, three days dead, and then suddenly he wasn't. We don't just believe that Jesus resurrected spiritually or that he was like some kind of ghost. It's a little weird. But that his real Israeli human body was raised from death to life. And that many, many people saw him in the flesh. And that they also saw him miraculously ascend or rise up to heaven uh, 40 days after he resurrected. So all of this a really big claim and if you have trouble with it it's okay it's okay to admit that you don't totally buy into it but I would argue that it's a claim that you have to wrestle with in order to really contend with Christianity and and I think you'll find that as we discuss it it actually makes more sense um, maybe more sense than any other argument you could come up with um, so tonight first we're going to look at why the resurrection makes sense um, or at least why it isn't a myth. <laughs> and then two, we're going to discuss, like, why is this doctrine so crucial to the Christian faith and to our lives? Um, so to discuss why it makes sense, I thought that maybe we could look at, like, three main arguments against the resurrection um, or why it is not plausible. And then kind of just answer those three. So the first one that I thought of was and others many people have thought of, is that uh, people at that time, this is like an objection someone might have, people at that time didn't know that resurrection was impossible, right? They didn't have the scientific advancements that we do, and so they could have been easily duped into believing that Jesus rose from the dead, right? Like, oh, there's a guy who rose from the dead, okay. Um, and to answer this, I had to do some digging, but we know that from studies of the culture of the day, neither Jews nor Gentiles and non-Jews would have accepted or even expe expected at all a bodily re resurrection. And it simply wasn't part of either of their worldviews. The Gentiles thought that to die was to be liberated from the weak and corrupt physical world, and they wouldn't even have desired to be raised from the dead. Um, and then the Jews believed in a resurrection, but they believed that it would come as part of, like, restoring universal flourishing at the end of time not an individual bodily resurrection. Uh, so you guys can figure this out. Like if the disciples wanted to spread a rumor, they probably would have chosen one that would have been accepted by the people 
they were trying to tell the rumor to. They wouldn't have chosen such an inconceivable one. Um, so that's, that's just a little bit about that first objection. Um, another one is that, you know, well, you know, Jesus' followers could have stolen his body, and they could have started the rumor that he rose from the dead. Um, and I suppose that's true. They could have done that. Uh, but our knowledge of the, like, first century burial practices and, like, the information that we have about that particular tomb, it, it really shows us that stealing the body is a lot harder than it sounds. Um, so, first of all, there was this large, heavy stone. You can kind of see it in this picture that I found. Um, closing up the tomb's entrance. And we know that it was large because... Like, in Mark here, it, it says, like, Jesus' followers are walking to the tomb, and they're like, how are we going to actually get into the tomb in order to take care of Jesus' body? Um, and so, you know, it was it was a big, large, hard-to-move thing. Um, and then we also see in Matthew, like, when we when Rhiannon read in Matthew 27, Jesus' enemies, like, wanted to keep his disciples from trying to steal the body. And so they got these Roman guards, right? And they, they told them, like, under pain of death, like, make sure that you are keeping watch outside this tomb. Um, and these guys are trained to stay awake, trained in, you know, uh, military, uh, military things and to follow orders. And uh, the disciples were a bunch of fishermen. So there's a lot of obstacles um, for stealing the body. So, like, like I said, stealing the body is technically possible. Um, I don't think it's probable, and you guys can make up your own minds about that. But um, And so we, we still have to contend with the fact that the tomb was empty. And it would have been nearly impossible for the disciples to sneak the body anywhere under the noses of the Roman guards. And then when you add in the fact that nobody would believe a bodily resurrection, this objection kind of starts to uh, stop holding water. And then real quick, thirdly um, and lastly, People might say, well, yeah, they saw Jesus, but it was kind of just a hallucination or, like, wishful thinking. Um, they just really wanted him to be alive, and so they were just kind of, you know, seeing things. Um, and, and in order to answer this, we have to, you know, look at who were the witnesses and what did they say they saw. Um, and to me, this is probably the most compelling point. Um, Paul uh, summarizes the gospel and who... Jesus appeared to in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, so I really want to draw your attention to the last part. Verse 5 says, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters, or brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, the some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. So Paul wasn't actually there at the tomb, but he's taking time to name who Jesus appeared to. And this is kind of like a challenge, right? Like, hey, if this didn't happen to you, like, you could easily just start writing letters, you know, talking to people and saying, like, Paul is making stuff up. Like, this is not true. Um, and you have over 500 people, you know, who could have challenged Paul and the other disciples on this, but they didn't. And we also know what the witnesses went on to do, right? They went on to start the Christian church. And that was not easy, friends. Like, uh, they were persecuted. They were martyred, um, all because they believed that Jesus was raised from the dead, and they wouldn't stop saying it. <laughs> like, the emperors would tell them, like, you know, you don't really believe that, right? And they would be like, no, we, we actually do. And then they would kill them. And so 
a mass hallucination or a deception really just can't account for why hundreds of people heard the news, believed it, and then literally changed their entire way of living from following the Mosaic Law, right? And then a lot of them died for those beliefs. And and so if you take these as a whole, like each of these individual facts may not prove anything. And there are more. There are more that we could talk about. Um, and I'd love to if you guys want to at any point um, in person. But each of these facts is part of the whole picture that you really have to wrestle with um, when trying to dismiss the resurrection of fairy tales. From my view, from where I'm standing, the only way to account for all of this is to consider that it actually happened. So we're left to admit that it takes faith to, either be to believe either option, either that he stayed dead or that he rose again. All right, so we may or may not still be on the same page about the resurrection's viability, um, probability. And, uh, but now let's move on to consider why his resurrection and ascension are so important um, and, and kind of like what difference they make to us. So we're going to use Paul's writing on the resurrection later on in 1 Corinthians 15 kind of like as our roadmap for this part. So it says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, there's a lot in there, and I would encourage you to go back and, like, really think about this whole passage. It's really, really good. But in short, Jesus' resurrection and ascension are so important because they prove that Jesus wins. He got back up right after the knockout. He's the ultimate comeback story. And his sacrifice uh, was, was sufficient to pay for sins, and his coming life Coming to life overthrows death. And on the other hand, as Paul says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, his death didn't do anything for sinners. And our hope that our sin is taken care of is just wishful thinking. So we're going to break it down into these two points. First, we'll look at how Jesus, and by extension us, can have victory over sin, and then we'll unpack how we can have victory over death through his resurrection. So first... Because Jesus rose from the dead and lives today, we can have assurance that our sin is paid for. Um, Paul's implicit point here in, in, in verse 17 is that because Christ is raised, our faith is not futile and we are not still in our sins. So think about this. Jesus' death, the payment for our sins, right, was not sufficient to make us right with God on its own. Like that approved message Right on the screen after you pay off your credit card debt, um, approved, enough, finished, you don't owe anything more. And, and friends, because Jesus rose, we don't owe anything more for our sins. It's taken care of. And it's proof that the sacrifice was enough for you and for me. And so this means that your remaining sin, the sin that you still feel and still have to fight against, is powerless in the end against Jesus' victory. Just like in a war, where the news of victory 
hasn't quite reached the front lines and they're still doing battle, we are still dealing with just remaining sin every day. Um, we still feel burdened by our failures. still feel burdened by our brokenness. But Jesus' resurrection and ascension mean that, our, that his victory is actually our victory. And in Jesus' death, he took our damning sin with him to the grave. In his resurrection, he left it there. And so this means that because Jesus is on the throne today, full of life and his resurrected body, you and I have proof that our sin isn't too big for God. Praise Jesus, right? When we mess up, when we hurt others, when we run from God, when we get caught in a cycle of addiction and shame, when we start to listen to the voice that said, says we've just messed up too bad, that God's done with us, we can look at the cross and the empty grave and tell that voice, no, that our Savior has applied his death and resurrection to our account and that his victory over sin is our victory over sin. And so we don't have to try to justify ourselves anymore. So the next time shame rears its ugly head, friends, you can tell it, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he lives. So that's our first reason why the resurrection is so important. The second reason is that Jesus' resurrection and ascension mean that his people have victory over death. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna dive into children's literature for a second. In the line, the witch in the wardrobe. Some of you may know where I'm going with this. Um, C.S. Lewis gives us a really good analogy for the gospel. So the lion, Aslan, right? He represents Jesus. And he ends up giving his life up willingly for this boy who had betrayed his family and Aslan himself, a traitor. And Aslan allows himself to be killed by the evil white witch instead of the boy. But the next morning, he comes alive again, which breaks the stone table that he was killed on. And the, the power of the white witch out of Renarnia comes to an end. And so here's what Aslan says in the book. I don't know that it's in the movie um one question about how this could be he says it means said aslan that though the witch knew the deep magic there is a magic deeper still which she did not know her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned she would have read there a different incantation she would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. Do you see the parallels? Jesus' resurrection is proof that the laws of life and death that we know now are not how it's supposed to be. C.S. Lewis gets at this by calling it a magic deeper still. And this is the way that God intended for his world to operate. Uh, he intended that there would be no death. So, so death is actually the intruder the disruptor. And because of Adam and Eve's sin, it runs after all of us, death, with a dog of determination. And it always wins, right? But what if, as a part of God's grand plan for all time, the reign of terror that death has on all of us was only for a season, was only until God himself came to earth to make death itself start working backwards. So what if, Instead of Jesus' resurrection being a disruption of the natural order of things, what we see as natural is actually the disruption. That Jesus raising to life is actually a restoration 
of the way things were supposed to be. Just like Aslan broke the White Witch's power over Narnia, the power of death is broken by Jesus' resurrection. So if you trust in Christ, you have a future with Jesus to look forward to, which gives you a hope for today. Look again at the second half of this passage from Corinthians. Um, it means, especially the end there, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is saying that Jesus isn't the only one. He will be raised from the dead when all is said and done. He's taking us with him in the end. And we have a hope for a future because of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. So for Christians, not only do Jesus' resurrection and ascension give us a future hope, they remove our fear of death, and they make our life actually have purpose and meaning. Um, our fears, right, our fears of the future, of sickness, of not making a difference, of failure, of anything else, find their end in Jesus' resurrection. Yes, we are in the midst of a global pandemic. I know that. That is very real. Not fearing death doesn't mean that we are reckless, right? We're still called to love our neighbors, and we can take care of ourselves and be safe. But in those moments of anxiety or fear about sickness and death, we can remind each other that Jesus' resurrection means that death isn't the end. Fear doesn't get to win because through Christ, we are secure. You're not expendable or temporary. You are meant for eternity. And even if the worst happens, right, and we die, we know that because Christ overcame death, we will too. This also gives meaning and significance to the here and now, as the risen Christ invites us into his work of making all things new. We're free to love other people boldly and take risks without fear of missing out on the good life. We've actually got the good life waiting for us. So as we close, I just want to talk briefly to those of you who are maybe still unconvinced. And it's, it's okay to be skeptical. Like, we welcome that at RUF. But I would ask you to just really consider this. What if Jesus really did come alive after three days? What if his resurrection proves that he beat death and is offering you new life today and for eternity? What would that mean for you? Is it possible that it would actually change everything? So let me pray, and then we will sing our last song and do discussion groups. Lord Jesus, um, thank you that you're really patient and kind with us as we think through um, tricky topics. Lord, um, thank you for bearing with us as we um, we do still have fear. We do still have, have um, sin that we're dealing with, Lord, but we know that you have taken care of that in the end and that you're with us um, right now in the present and pray that you would um, that you would just continue to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen.